all is important to us. Hello and welcome to tonight's show. You've arrived at your destination. Connecting. Hi guys, welcome to Glitching the Code here on Iconic.com and you'll be able to watch this on YouTube if they don't check us off, BitChute, and um, you'll be able to hear this on Spotify and Apple iTunes and a few others. I'm here with my good friend Johnny Fedmore. We did a, a really good interview uh, for my deep dive show on Iconic a few weeks ago. That went down a storm, absolutely brilliant. And David, David Ike emailed me specifically about the show to say how good it was. Um, but get a pen and paper ready because... This information comes quick and fast from Johnny. So we'll be talking today a little bit more, a little bit about the Welcome Five, if you haven't heard of that, um, but also about the tale of the two Farrars. And now this is brand new to me as well. So I'm looking forward to this, Johnny. I will leave it to you to go into your flow because the information is so in-depth and uh, so vast and it will show how the gain of function research goes back well over 100 years. Yes, it will. And thank you for having me back. And I'm really, really happy, really, really uh, wonderful platform to be on and to, to support. Uh, it's, it's really free thinking. Um, the, the, listen, there's so much information. I wrote uh, um, an article in January. Um, and even, even though I knew that there was lots of other things coming, I mean, we had already reported that Unlimited Hangout um uh with whitney webb we had already reported on cyber polygon and the up and coming events were going to happen um and it's all rolling out as expected so we expected you know any pandemic situation actually only lasts between um uh, 12 months and 18 months and they pro they they that was basically the amount of time that it lasted so when it could turned into uh 2022 i just felt like you know things have changed january 4 I could see things changing and I had to finish uh, this article and get it out there because um, uh, there was going to be lots of other things and really focus in on uh, COVID and the British side of COVID because everybody had been uh, uh, focusing on the American side all of the time uh, and what they don't know, a lot of Americans don't know as well, is that there was a massive British um, a unit operational unit that had been set up many decades before to handle such things to um, promote the idea of a pandemic and lockdowns and other things they were the people who actually pioneered pandemic modeling that you've uh, been used to entrap us in loads of different ways and they were this small uh, group all connected with the welcome trust in the uk and the welcome trust has got a long history uh, goes back to um, henry welcome who, who, who was its creator and he basically created things like pills and stuff pill form uh you know having medicine in that form things that were, were were fundamentally you you can go on to the welcome trust archives and you can go and see all of the different things they implemented in in uh, the medicinal world and some of them are crazy he also liked naughty things like naughty sex toys and stuff as well so he's a bit of a boy um but when he like like Cecil Rhodes and others, he would leave uh, a will and a trust behind it uh, him, and he uh, made so much money that that is, became a really powerful entity. Um, it it had a private arm up until uh, 1994, roughly. There was a merger around that time. I'll explain about. 
And it was um, extremely powerful all around the world, had research centers, research labs. Um, it, it, it was the uh, the American arm of it was called Burroughs Welcome. They were the people who introduced AZT, the controversial use, <laughs> controversial uh, HIV medication that everybody knows is a gene killer. Even its, its research shows it just kills genes. It doesn't repair, doesn't help. It just kills genes. That's doesn't matter where what genes they are it's going to kill it so uh, people always got sick and of course they have autoimmune disease syndrome from it now what a lot of people don't know i once i, I once uh had a, a medical uh, report back about something that was wrong with me and it said in the bottom like aids and i was like what what? Oh my God, I've got AIDS, but it's autoimmune disease syndrome. So you have something, I had something called Graves disease, which was a thyroid disease, um, uh, unknown where it comes from, but basically uh, it, it, it lowers your immune system massively. Um, and that AIDS is a description of that a lot of the time, you know, it, it's a lot, a lot of it is about the description of a disease that makes you autoimmune. And they say, they say, oh, well, HIV leads to it. And, and of course they, they were working on that principle that if we can get loads of people on HIV medication, this HIV medication that we're pushing out there, then uh, we can make a lot of money. And they did make a lot of money from it. And it, it was very controversial. People like, of course, Michael Jordan and stuff. Um, it was Michael Jordan who, who uh, Magic Johnson, sorry. I always, yeah, I, I always Johnson, say that. Yeah. I, I always say I Michael say, Jordan. Yeah. Poor Michael Jordan, I'm sorry. But but and not, not poor Magic Johnson because he didn't listen to the hype and he didn't take a lot of the medication. He didn't bother with, with all of that. He took stuff that was good for his health continue he's still i think he's still alive today isn't he yeah, um uh, the, the the fact is is that there, there was there was obviously something wrong and it's obviously uh medical jiggery pokery as always but that was a very interesting time the 70s and 80s uh, as all of that stuff was happening there was another man who worked at the time for glaxo when it was just glaxo before it became glaxo smith klein he would actually be the man who would merge Glaxo with uh, Smith Klein, a uh, uh, Beecham. Uh, it's complicated because he actually merged Glaxo Welcome with Smith Klein Beecham. Yeah. But but of course, uh, Glaxo uh, in the time frame I'm talking about, Glaxo and Welcome hadn't merged yet. So so it he was just the head of Glaxo. He, he went to American Institute for a while and then came back. Wonder what he did there. Um, and then basically uh, he was uh, head of research. Now I already come across Glaxo. Um, researching Glaxo during that era when I was looking into the Kendall House case where um, uh, Teresa Cooper has written a lot about this. Teresa Cooper should be listened to. Uh, her case has been proven. All, I mean, it's, it's a proven case. It was a load of girls who were um, uh, uh, locked in a care home. Uh, they were basically just uh, troubled girls and they were treated as though they were completely mentally ill and experimented on. Um, and the, the person who was administering all the drugs in this really weird um, uh, regime of abuse, systematic sexual abuse, systematic psychological abuse. Um, the, the girls slumped over each other, vomit all over each other, not treated like humans at all. Um, as, as, uh, you would not believe, if anybody looks at Kendall House, they will cry and cry and cry. Um, I'd already looked into Glaxo because uh, the person administrating the drugs um, was someone who, uh, um, Fiona Stripe, I think her name is, uh, Stripe, um, with 
with a K. And she, she, uh, her husband was also involved with research with Glaxo at the time. Um, and it's really interesting that they were given medication like Mufitonis, which has never ever been identified, even though it's recorded down there. They still don't know where it comes from because you know they have a history of experimenting on vulnerable people. And what we what we see now, uh, I'm, I'm not going to skip ahead too far because I'm going to go back again. So I can go back really far. Um, what we see now is that sort of like treatment that those girls got in the care home in a very like secure way that they could manipulate and torture a load of girls who were literally most of them under 18 it like sexual abuse pedophilia all of it they were being raped and uh, you know that case is barely known the same people uh, some of the same people who helped uh, with the review official review of that case um also did the jimmy savile case so i mean it's like you know we're put in charge with doing that so i, I it's obviously that that there is a unit that goes around and makes sure or they sweep up all the information about this and it's amazing no one knows about it because you can read the reports and the reports are in depth and loads of people came forward as witnesses it's as big as the epstein case it really is um and and it, i i when i when i found out that it was glad so links there i was very interested by that but like i i got busy over years did loads of things i've tried to come back to it on occasion and i i did about a year and a half ago or so um and i'm i'm in communication with Teresa cooper about coming out because she's still uh, suffering the effects of immune uh, um autoimmune disease syndrome of loads of different things from being experimented on being locked in a room for like 18 months so something like that a, a, a crazy the things that were done to these girls as well no one remembers them and those were the type of people they used to target and now they're targeting everybody because they systemized that they systemized that abuse to the general public and they did it starting in the 80s and uh, late 80s and early 90s when they decided okay a guy called richard sykes this guy who's head of Glaxo, he's he's going up in Glaxo and he says, we need to, obviously he's saying behind the scenes, we need to control all of this and we need to make sure that we're in control of all of this and group and all of these farmers to talk businesses are all going to be attacked eventually so we should all defend so so you know his idea was to merge everything so everybody shared their research this would allow for centralization of research this would allow for funding to be focused on with on certain would basically big pharma organizations would share their research up and um at this time roy anderson who's behind me at the end there, uh, he, he was um, the head of um, the Welcome uh, Trust. Uh, maybe it was Welcome PLC because what they said, they, they like get rid of that. They disperse it into the other arm. They become just a trust after 1994. They kind of like reform what their identity is to kind of take get away regulation and, and, and scrutiny that comes with that's one of the things that comes from this merger. But he basically, he is responsible, Richard Sykes is responsible for saying, let's merge 
um, uh, and he says this openly, merge academia, uh, merge big pharma, um, and uh, merge like, like public sector stuff together into one group and all share the research and all decide where that money should go from. And he's then merges Glaxo, which is just come together with Welcome, PLC. He merges Glaxo, Welcome, and with Smith, Klein, Beecham. He's involved in then creating Beecham's comes to the side. GlaxoSmithKline comes out as one of the biggest entities, research entities in the world as well. And the Wellcome Trust is another entity that goes on. It's a couple other smaller bits that come out of that. But those are the biggest three entities. And the Wellcome Trust is now in a position away from regulation and with extreme power. And in 1994, they're running a project, a joint project through Oxford University um, and put in charge of this project by the for the Wellcome Trust. Um, uh, and Oxford is a guy called Edward C. Holmes. He's right at the end. Uh, and Edward Holmes, um, he will be in charge of uh, deciding where all of the Wellcome Trust's massive amount of funding goes, who gets it, which scientific projects, and more importantly, large groups of people who will be funded for a lifetime by them. So they basically control the scientists and they're, they're selected for mainly road trust scholars in Oxford. I mean, I'm sure some of your audience know about the Rhodes Trust and the Rhodes Scholarships and, and Cecil Rhodes itself and the um, Anglo-American Empire. Um, but for people who don't know it, it's, you know, that's quite a big thing. The Rhodes uh, Scholarship uh, is something where people who have been very, uh, they've done a very good job in academia, but they've done very good in their, their, their actual uh, lessons, training and their qualifications, but they've got something extra that they can give and they uh, agree to everything the establishment wants to do. So they're, they're the best ones to recruit and they seem to go back to Oxford for a year doing a DPhil, so a diploma in philosophy, uh, as a Rhodes Scholar. And this seems to be the training of the elite. Most of the people, if you look around in this group, most of the people are Rhodes Scholars. They're also, of the Welcome Five, um, I'm talking about the underlings, really. They're like Rhodes Scholars. They choose from these sort of people. So at one time, in 1994, um, uh was recruited for one specific project for 35 graduates who will be funded entire career. And those are some of the big names that you see out there during the COVID narrative, the creation of the COVID narrative. They were creating this, you know, at the same time Richard Sykes is creating a merger, they're also creating um, something out of the Wellcome Trust, which is something much different than, um, it's something from the past, it's a relic from the past. And these guys will go on to do other things after this, after this merger was successful and after the Wellcome Trust uh, goes on a little bit. The Wellcome Trust would be funding massive projects. Those are people all across the place. Um, one of the, the, the people uh, funded throughout nearly his entire career was Roy Anderson over there. Um, and uh, Roy Anderson had a group, a group of people around him. 
including uh, Neil Ferguson just by there. Uh, Neil Ferguson, everybody knows. Now, Roy Anderson is the mentor of Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson didn't know what to do when he was starting out and he needed direction. And Robert May, uh, who was, I believe, then president of the uh, Royal Society, said, hey, at a presentation that Neil Ferguson attended that he was presenting, said, hey, you, why don't you get with Roy Anderson and you go over to his school where he was a special professor, the Lineker professor, um, of zoology um, and and you you learn about that and you study under him and he said all right then that inspired me and he went and studied uh, Roy Anderson also a member of the Royal Society and um, Roy Anderson and Robert May cross over lots of times he actually helped Robert May in writing two books etc so they're, they're, they're close friends um, uh, Robert May would also be one of the people left to scrutinize some of his actions later on for the government report that's nice isn't it um, it's, so so uh, Neil Ferguson and uh, Roy Anderson, at the turn of the, the millennium, something really interesting was happening because there was like this rivalry going on in Oxford where um, Sinetra Gupta and some of her colleagues, Sinetra Gupta, some might know from the Great Barrington Declaration, heading one of the heads of that, uh, was having an argument, internal argument with Roy Anderson because Roy Anderson had said she had slept around and whatever and she hadn't. So she was pissed off, said, no, I didn't sleep around and I want him kicked out. And he refused to apologize at first, then, then acted like a bit of a clown, then apologized, then agreed to pay money to charity. But then the board of Oxford said, no, you've got to get out. And he said, well, I'm going to take my seven million pounds worth of Wellcome Trust funding with me and go over to Imperial in, in, in London. Then goodbye. Uh, I'll take all my research. I'll take Brian Spratt, someone who's also been involved in reviews later on to cover up something that Roy Anderson was implicitly involved in. Um, it's amazing. This is amazing. These is it, people, they just... There's uh, that kind of... Sorry, just to pick up on that moment. So there is this kind of... I get a lot of information sent to me and people saying against the, the uh, Great Bravenson Declaration. Is there this kind of genuine rival here, Imperial College, or is this just kind of a, a theatre for the masses here? And they're kind of both controlled. Because if they know each yeah, other, yeah. there is maybe some genuine animosity, but it's controlled at another level. Would yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get, I get what you're saying completely. And from what I see, it seems like that, but it's a very complicated soap opera that's going on at this time and 20 years later in regards to those people. Um, Sinetra Gupta, um, at this time that we're talking about, is married, I believe, to Adrian Hill, who would later go on to head up the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, program. So he was the head of the Oxford AstraZeneca program. And he was Sinetra Gupta's um, husband uh, uh, until the Great Barrington Declaration, they had a divorce. So there's a sense that, well, maybe there was obviously an eternal rift. And um, Sinetra Gupta, during the time when Roy Anderson was saying stuff, was correct. He was saying stuff that was out of line. He was trying to uh, push it down. So she was obviously a different voice. Now, that doesn't mean her voice is on the side of the people mm. automatically. That doesn't mean that she's got the voice that's the righteous voice. She could just be um, uh, peed off because someone's been spiteful to her. But but the fact is, is that there's evidence says that Sinetra Gupta is acting honestly and to be honest I thought the Great Barrington Declaration was a bit of a hoo-ha that I didn't trust too much when I first saw it um, and when I discovered this information I was a bit more like 
well, maybe there was some truth in it. Uh, but the, the, uh, one of the, the problems I think people had with the Great Barrington Declaration was Sinetra Gupta was married to Adrian Hill, who was the head of the Oxford AstraZeneca um, vaccine programs. Uh, so so it's really it, it, that 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 is like hard for people to get over. Um, and there is a lot of soap opera because, like I say, it, Roy Anderson left. He went over. Um, and Sinetra Gupta had won in that sense. He was in a very prestigious position as Lineker Professor of Oxford, and he went over to Imperial, and amazingly, for no reason, they started studying foot and mouth disease. The foot and mouth disease hadn't been in the country for 30 years. There'd been no foot and mouth. There was no reason. They'd, they'd, they'd had a quick look into BSC. They'd had a quick, like, gander around that. Roy Anderson was quite big into looking into BSC, but BSC wasn't something that was, like, you know, you could, didn't catch it from person to person. You got it from infected meat, so you could control that very easily. It was a very different type of thing. Normally, they looked at human transmittable, uh, transmittable diseases by human human to human um, or animal to human as they love to go on about um, but this was really weird suddenly like 1968 had been the last foot of mouth outbreak in Britain but suddenly they're all over it they put all of their research efforts into it um, and that's at the end of 2000 and uh, then uh, we all know what happens in a it's about March I think 2001 where uh, the foot and mouth outbreak happens amazing it puts them really in prime position to literally take control of the entire response from Tony Blair. So they, Tony Blair gathers a board together. It's got some really good scientists, like a guy called Kitching, who's really good. He's fundamentally looked at evidence, but he was ahead of, um, uh, oh, what's that? Not Porton Down, but the other uh, chemical research place that they had. I'll, I'll remember it for later. But he was the head of a really, really like, you know, important research facility. And he was speaking sense. He, I think he knew that it had been leaked out by the government. He didn't know quite how it got there because he ran the lab that contained 500,000 samples they kept for the seven different type of foot and mouth disease. Why would you keep 500,000 samples? It always infuriates me. It's like, OK, we need <laughs> yeah. to back it up. How many times do we need to back it up? Well, we've got seven. We need to back it up at least twice. <laughs> and then you get 500,000 samples stored. And, and of course, this sort of, um, uh, I, I think I think what you saw in the officials who had dealt with it before, uh, who had been dealing with all this, is that they were like, oh, I think this is our fault. Ooh, and they felt like that. And they were pushed out of the equation straight away by Roy Anderson and Neil Ferguson, who went straight up with a pandemic modeling, first time computer modeling had been introduced to the public uh, and, and to uh, cause lockdowns and to cause some sort reaction and they showed their devastating models that if they didn't take over all of this death would happen and soon you could have loads of transmissions and look it's already transmitting to sheep we're doing pcr tests we know it's so you know it's really it's it really became obscene in actual fact there was um, a, a a technique for vaccinating for foot and mouth which was called like a ring technique where you start vaccinating like three five three to five kilometers outside where you find the infection and you go inward like that mm -hmm. until there's no infection left and that was the traditional way of dealing with it 
But this had gone around the country loads. They tried to blame it on one farmer, but that was bull. This had gone around the country loads. It was found over here, over here, over here. And I'm not sure if anybody notices, but you don't see many cows on trains and stuff. Yes, they get transported, but they get transported usually from the field they pasture in. Uh, they're, they're in for the pasture to straight to a place where they're either going to have uh, be taken for milk or they're, they're, they're kaputs. You know, it's not like they go shopping out. I uh, think they go to different farms. They go. <laughs> they go see their friends and so the spread of it is always containable so it was bizarre that it was all over the place and that these guys had had been working on it for so long when 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 why had you been working why did you change all your money it makes so obviously they're in they're in prime place they pressurize tony blair tony blair says you have to take over the entire response and their worst case scenario unrolls they just do it they just do that. What they, they instead of seeing if that's the case and trying for anything else, they do a load of random weird testing, which doesn't really test. It's kind of like the PCR model of testing. I think it was a PCR testing for cows, really. That, that that's really what they did. They couldn't. They they claimed they couldn't do it fast enough, so they had to just kill if they found one infection. So instead of doing a vaccine ring, it was like find an infection, kill everything, uh, all around it. So that was the model they took. And everybody knows at the time what happened. They, uh, at the time, uh, the Ministries of Agriculture, Fishery and Farms, uh, which later be DEFRA, um, were, had, 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 uh, before they took over, had produced the, the, the numbers of the people who were dying daily. And you could always see the day before and et cetera. They now split up into three different sections, manipulated the figures, made it look like their techniques were making it rate, uh, like the, the, the amount of cull, uh, culled animals go down. But in actual fact, they were raising the coal and in secret they killed in the, in the end eight million animals and most of it wasn't seen and they had to bring the army in and this includes stories where like beloved cows in pubs who were friends with horses got got shot in the head in front of all of the customers and dragged out by people in biochemical suits and you know the whole situation was bizarre and afterwards they were rewarded so they've done all of this damage to the countryside. Shouldn't they be held accountable? No, they had um, they had created a pandemic model in showing that the uh, the or oh, epidemic model in sorry in this case because it's just one country yeah. um, that the uh, viral uh, virus would be uh, gone just on election day when Tony Blair uh, had set a reset, he had rescheduled the election, pushed it a month further down the line and it would end literally on that day. And then they pumped up the killing, pumped up the killing. So they made sure that it would end. Um, and all these guys would be rewarded. They'd get honors and Neil Ferguson would get honors and stuff. And they would all go on to do other things which were really important. So Roy Anderson um, would go on to um, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who's uh, World Health Organization stuff, um, really involved in the big elite sort of manipulating. Of, so he would go to work for the Ministry of Defense. Uh, Neil Ferguson would come out every couple of years with a new danger pandemic look it's bird flu it's going to kill 200 million he said he literally produced models showing it would kill 200 million and it killed like 670 something people um and and same with uh different for swine flu and other things over the the next uh, period the, the 20 year period up to uh, almost 20 years up to covid 
And then COVID, of course, happens, and we see who comes out first, who on the British scene, who's the first one out there? Neil Ferguson, the man Neil Ferguson. He's got Roy Anderson much further in the distance now because Roy Anderson's face was the face of the foot and mouth uh, disease with uh, Neil Ferguson on the side. This time they've done the switcheroo to make sure there's a, a, a face change. And uh, if you look at all of the, the um, talks um, Roy Anderson's given during that time, it's clear that he's uh, talking the exact same line. Of course, everybody knows Neil Ferguson got caught doing this and caught doing that. Um, but his model was something that would propel the lock downs forward his initial model that was the 500,000 people would die in Britain alone it's all going to be devastated was exactly what he had done all of the time to try and spark one of these outbreaks and during this time they're given permission to go into every outbreak uh, uh, zone where an outbreak has happened all the Ebola stuff and etc and manipulate stuff and produce their figures and and, and keep c- control of those studies um, that, they're, they're, that are coming from it and create fear from it so they, they, they've really they've done a good job of that. And when when this all happened, you know, people who had been someone who had been recruited by Edward Holmes back in 1994, maybe out of the 35 graduates, but it was just graduating from Oxford at that time, was Jeremy Farrar, someone a lot of people would know is now now the director of the Wellcome Trust. Um, and it was through the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic. And he, of course, is an amazing figure to study during the pandemic, as is Richard Sykes. Both of those, what they did, extremely important roles. Richard Sykes was responsible for the entire rollout of the vaccines and all the booster programs in the UK. Everything was planned by him and designed and organized by him. The man who had successfully merged Glaxo Welcome and Smith Klein Beecham together and created this fundamental base where certain scientists who are funded by certain people can have access to all the research and everybody else has to pay or, or like for, for the little bits or just get their their the other version of the research. The research that means no one will ask any questions and it'll keep them in power. So there's already, you know, they had created this power base and then suddenly he's in a position in um, uh, 2021 where he's head of the vaccine, UK Vaccine Task Force and he's literally responsible for all of this, uh, Richard Sykes. This is. Um, Edward Holmes, he, he got to a point where he was, like he would did work all through that time by the time it hit to the pandemic he's the person who translated the first uh sequencing of covid on january the 11th covid sequence was released on january 10th january 11th edward holmes released the uh, uh, transcribed version i think he's going to get a nobel prize for it something along those lines um th- this was while he was in fudan university and he had been in fudan university since a few months before we think that the, the outbreak happened in Wuhan originally. It's extremely interesting that he's in China and they choose to put him in China in that time. And he's so important in the role of translating um, uh, that. And, and his, his role afterwards is still promoting uh, vaccines and promoting how terrible and dangerous COVID is and a lot of other things. He's still, when I mentioned the 35 people he funded for the entire career, he had loads of, um, he, he listed it down in his own CV, um, loads and loads and loads and loads you can look at it online it's publicly available it's within this article um you can see all of the many different um 
uh, like recruitment programs he was involved with, which would have funded people, scientists for 10 to 15 years or five years. You know, there's like 30 groups who are funded for over five years and there's 30 in this group who are funded for this time of 30 and there's so, so it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the major scientists all recruited through this systematic program of these elite educational institutes. And they, they, they sift through the ones who are gonna do exactly what they say and abide by the narrative once it comes to the crunch. And those are the people who we see on our TV. Those are the people linked with all of these people, people like Debbie Shridhar and others, um, who are the ones we see, who we get annoyed at. Um, so, so Richard Sykes involved, uh, for the, responsible for all of that. But Jeremy Farrar was responsible originally at the beginning of the COVID for above Fauci and um, witty and people uh, uh, as um, organizing the entire response to the entire COVID pandemic in the Western world, <laughs> which seems like a very big responsibility for one guy. I can't understand why you would choose this one man. Um, this was a man I had to investigate further. I had to go back further because, I mean, he was responsible for the economics behind it, the finance and the ideas behind it. He pushed everything to fruition. Um, but he was also responsible for the SARS-CoV-2 cover-up, the actual paper, the proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2. He was a man who organized that paper within 10 days to be made. That was a lie. It's fake. It's fake. It's they're still even now they're producing papers and saying we're going to do it again. They produce it again. And they're like, we got the same results again. It's fake. These people have lied. It's provably fake. It's even in their workings. You can work out. It's like everybody worked out at the time. Um, and the people involved in that were Edward Holmes, were um, Andrew Rambeau, who's the, one of the people who's like, um, uh, who they are the mentor of. He's uh, um, a junior uh, Royal Society member, you could say. And he is. He's a, he's a member of the Royal Society, but in a, like an apprentice <laughs> lurking in the background. He's also um University of Edinburgh. He is such, in my opinion, an arsehole. Uh, you can barely find a picture of Andrew Rambo um, out there. He's very secretive about his, himself. And, uh, and it's very interesting that. And since he's gone along with this, every, he's, he's started to get things. He's making keynote speeches and he's, he's getting success around the place. Oh, isn't that convenient? Um, all of these guys are members of the Royal Society. All of their underlings are members of the Royal Society. Most of them then under underlings, people under those are members of the Road Trust. And Jeremy Farrar just seemed like, how can you have that much responsibility given to one man that you think you can get away with it? Like, that's like, you. oh, we found this guy with like a van full of dead bodies in the back. I mean, oh my God. And when you, we talked at the beginning, I, Tale of Two Farrars, I, I went through Farrar really heavily. I couldn't, I, I could not stop at just um, 1994 because it was too interesting. It didn't make any sense. A lot of his life, he's the youngest born of, uh, I believe, six children. His father was Eric Farrar, and Eric Farrar um, got captured uh, in the war um, uh, back in World War II, in the war, uh, as they call it. 
and um and he was a really uh interesting fella got held until the end and um there's a little tale about how he got taken down to intelligence to ministry of defense in london uh by his future wife uh, uh jamie farrar's mother uh who was a driver who used to drive um people who would come back from uh, the camps who had been come out of the prisoner war camps would drive them down from scotland to london and they would be um interrogated or not interrogated you know um, uh, i can't remember what they say but anyway they, they would be talked to by the Ministry of Defence and find out any other operations or any other things that were involved. Um, so that, that's an intriguing uh, intelligence link with his father. But his father was born in 1917. And I found it very, very interesting that there was really not, not that much about him. But there was also that I, I like to track family histories um, because you find the truth or you find a lie from really concrete facts and who people are born to and where they're born. You can't hide it. You know, there's always rumors, there's always talk, there's always other things. And I, I couldn't understand something. I couldn't understand why Jeremy Farrar's grandparents, how they could be 52 years old in 1917 when they gave when when his grandmom supposedly gave birth um, to Eric Farrar, his father. I couldn't understand that. I, I can't understand because I mean, 52 year olds now trying to have a baby. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty positive that's nearly, nearly uh, near enough impossible. And I kept checking over and over again. Were these his real parents? And it doesn't make any sense. It's like even like he's born in 1917. They have a large family already. And um, their last kid is in 1911. And they, 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 they so they have a kid when they're like 42. And then there's no kid uh, like for a bit or something like that. And then there's no kid for a bit. And it just makes no sense. So I've included um, that within uh, something else I've done recently because I'm, I'm making something where I'm going back in time a little bit uh, to find out where all of this gain of function research come from. And what I found really interesting was there was a man called Farrar in the past who was an epidemiologist whose life is identical to Jeremy Farrar's. And his name was Reginald Farrar. And he was the head of Board of Health for London. And Reginald Farrar is a very interesting man indeed. He also worked uh, during his life. Uh, he eventually died of TB in the 20s uh, while out in Mongolia, I think. He was one of those he was, uh, traveling around a lot. Very interesting man, though. Um, he would serve a lot of time in India. Um, serve, I say, he was an epidemiologist looking at the bubonic plague and the, the bubonic plague was wreaking havoc through the late 1800s and early 1900s in India. Um, I'm talking hundreds of millions died. If I, you know, I, I never like saying stuff like that. It sounds so ridiculous uh, that, that that many people would have died, but I can't take in some of those figures sometimes, but I, people go, look, go look. It's devastating. The bubonic plague uh, ravaged the whole of India. And he went and studied that a bit. And he kept coming back to be the Board of Health uh, for London. But he, he started to get uh, picked up by things like uh, the Norton Trust, which was a trust at the time in the early 1900s. Uh, he would be, of course, the head of the Board of Health for London. Uh, he would also uh, become a member of the League of Nations. Um, and he um, would also uh, go places under the um, banner of the Swiss Red Cross. Um, so the very interesting sort of like links uh, that he had. And in 1911, there was this fantastically interesting outbreak in Manchuria, China. 
and it was an outbreak of pneumonic plague. So where they had been studying bubonic plague for a long time, this was pneumonic plague. And so pneumonic plague is a little bit different. You know, one spread by ticks on rats and jumps onto skin about you you get the plague uh, you get buboes come up as i used to call them little like uh, uh, uh plague uh boils um they go pustulous you die um majority of people died of plague you know it's, it's always wretched that's why it's called plague um the pneumonic plague is caught coughing, etc. Uh, this originated, believe is believed, and that is, is it seems to be correct. Originated from the Tarabagan marmot in Mongolia um, and and parts of China, parts of Manchuria in China. Um, and trappers would in back in the day they used to hunt these by horseback. And if uh, a Tarabagan marmot can't run, it's probably got the plague. If the 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 tarabagan marmot doesn't squeak all of the time and complain about being caught it's probably got the plague if it's got uh pustules under its claws it's probably got the plague and they knew this but then there was the western fashion market was booming and everybody wanted fur and marmot fur was quite fantastic really really warm and really used all about the place so trappers really like low down ones and western guys from outside would go to the uh, marmot's layers and they would dig up the burrows and they would in that case find the dead and dying marmots because they go back to the hole to die and they they would then get infected with plague and that's the start of the plague now that didn't happen with the trappers on horseback because you didn't have that greed you didn't have that that sort of like going into their burrows and, and digging up dead marmots because that's what they started doing so they, they, in that happened in about 1910 and by 1911 um it, in the end of this it was at 60,000 people would die because uh, a disease like this could kill a lot more but it's so terrifying it was so terrifying. It was just, like literally rushes through a community. No one can do anything about it um, apart from stick a deer to, to being far away from people, especially if they're ill. Um, in Mongolia, the people of Mongolia, if you had this, because they used to come across it, like trappers before used to get plague. They knew what it was. And what they used to do is sew them up in their tent until the smoke stopped. So they knew they were going to die and they'd have to sew them up in their tent and no one could go near them. And when the smoke stopped, it was time to burn the tent. I was going you to know, say, that... I often think the fire of London had something to do with eradicating the plague. I think that I think that a fort of it. I mean, the thing is, is that they they by that time, by the 1600s, even though like. Um, things like Thomas Malthus and stuff hasn't hit home, hasn't hit there yet. Like um, there were precursors to the idea of reducing the scummy population and rich people didn't walk, want to walk around in London with the scum on the floor and the piss everywhere. I mean, it, 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 you can't even imagine what I used to say. I, I, I grew up hanging around in um, castles in the sealed knot, like hanging around in castles on the weekend with my mates and they, they still smell a 15th century piss you know you can still smell it it's been hundreds of years of pissing on stone the piss smell never goes away so you know the, the london was a wretched place to live yeah. i think um but there was lots of disease he was a board of health for london so he's interested in this stuff uh, as well um regimen fra but these terabagan marmots have obviously caused a load of trouble uh, plagues hitting out and um uh, the man who would sort it out in china who would be put in a, a, a 
to to uh, respond to it was a guy called Dr. Wu. And Dr. Wu is an amazing man. He's actually the guy who invented the N95 masks. He is the inventor of the first mask. And that was to protect from a proper plague at a time that you could probably die. I mean, there was only three reported people who survived from this plague. Three out of 60,000 people who died, no one caught it and didn't die apart from three people. And they were severely altered afterwards. They, they say severely altered. They couldn't breathe properly. One of them couldn't move properly, etc. And they'd been given stuff, testy stuff. But this was a really interesting time. People were dying and science had reached a point in the late 1800s where they could do lots of gain-of-function research. They could do the first. The first, it was a birth of gain-of-function research. And Dr. Wu would say, look, we've done, we developed systems. We locked down certain parts of society. We did things that were different than other people to control this in a certain way. And they didn't do it for an unnecessary amount of time. And even, you know, when when um, I, I heard stories that when uh, train um, uh, people who who worked on the train companies and stuff found out that there was plague in the city, the trains were coming from, they would block off the train tracks and say, you can't come in. Yeah. They would they would they would lock down themselves. There was an area called Fuchientien and Fuchientien was split into four categories and you couldn't move from one part to the other unless you had a band on your wrist. A, a band on your arm mm. at a certain color and if you tried to cross over the other area you'd either have to be for work and you'd have to have a special pass like a in a sense a vaccine pass a movement pass to be able to move between one area and the other and all of these guys in the west wanted to study all of this they found it amazing this was the first time where something had happened and it had been so scary within because uh, even the indian plague was so scary but it was over there we weren't unsanitary like this but this could affect us something like this could happen to us we should go study it and see so all of the major powers sent their main men to it. Reginald Farrar was sent. Uh, some people complained about his experience, but he had been to India during the bubonic plague. He did understand little bits, but I, I don't. I think he rubbed people up the wrong way. He seems like a bit of a character, like a fun character. And I don't think they were used to that back then, because Reginald Farrar, even though I don't know what he was doing, I don't think it was probably right. He was having fun. He was out there enjoying himself. Every photo you see, you see him enjoying himself. And he was meeting lots of people, but they, something sinister under that underneath that agenda anyway so 1911 woo just at the end of this uh pandemic is a pandemic because it goes across multiple countries at this yeah. point um at the end of this pandemic calls an international symposium and the major powers send uh different people so in america they send a dr strong who's uh was nominated by the rockefeller institute um to be the person who goes and studies what's happening over there uh in britain it would be reginald farrow who's head of order power for london um japanese it would be kitasata shibasaburo who uh has uh I'll, I'll talk about him a little bit later. He's not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. He, um, in 1911, just after the symposium, would be the installation of the last emperor of China. This would be the installation of Japanese rule. And for the next 20 to 30 years, they would experiment on the Chinese people as though they were animals, dogs. In one case, they would call them logs. 
They would call them logs for how they treated them. They would lock entire cities in and they would give them diseases. They, they were the most cruel and horrible people and they would be uh, in, involved. Now, he, the Japanese had really uh, bad foreign relations at the time um they did not like anybody else they saw everybody else as lower so he didn't turn up to the symposium until the last moment and stuff you know he, he, he was one of those but kitasato shibasaburo would be the japanese representative who would of course then ravage china so he didn't care about these people at all um uh, there would be a, a, another one i can't quite remember who but basically those were the the main contenders they were the main people who were sent by the... Oh, the other was a Russian, uh, Dr. Daniel Zabalotny. And Zabalotny, um, he was uh, head of the St. Petersburg Women's Institute for Health. Uh, seems a bit strange, is that? But he had, done, he had done loads of research on loads of viruses, in, especially in TB. He had actually given himself TB at one point to try out a vaccine that he had made. And this is where the interesting thing comes in in Manchuria. These guys all come supposedly for this symposium, a supposed symposium. But in actual fact, they've all got an agenda to, to gain a function research on Chinese people with various viruses, including this virus. Um, it would be a free-for. They would all arrive over. Dr. Strong and his partner um, would arrive like mom, a month before the symposium so they can get ready for all of this because they would uh, inf infect, um, they would offer criminals who were sentenced to death. They would say, okay, to 104, I think it's about 154 criminals. And they said, we're going to give you this virus and then we'll give you this uh, inoculate, this snake oil that we've made out of nowhere and we have no idea and we'll test out on you. And if you survive it, you get to go free and so they were like all right then and the majority of them died and this happened over and over again even some of the doctors who were coming over because this symposium was more than just those four people it's a large group of people um even some of those died from taking their own vac vaccines and their own remedies. Hafkin's prophylactic was one of them. Uh, Hafkin went out there himself to promote Hafkin's prophylactic. Uh, and it didn't work. None of them worked. It, they just killed people. They just killed people. Uh, but they weren't going to stop and gain a function research. They, would, they needed to know. So they all came together. And this was a time, first time, where it was the first international symposium where it looks like, honestly, a load of Jack, if you see a picture of it, it's a load of Jack the lads of the scientific community and a couple of people who look really serious. Um, and they're all getting, this is a new time, a new era for them. They get to test out on people. And from 1911, you get this rollout then of loads of different things that we see. Oh, I say a rollout. Because I, I personally, I'm really suspicious about the fact that after all of this gain of function research, they're trying out for like, say, 25 years, that suddenly you get the Spanish flu come up. And if you look in recorded history, there's not many times where you can actually record a flu pandemic before then every time before it's like oh that might have been or that might have been but most of them were tb or cholera or something else that was an old world disease a flu was not something that was around it seemed like just a, a like came from that and then there was another disease um the one that was uh robert de niro did a movie called awakenings about people who had this syndrome that basically they went still and they couldn't speak and they were trapped inside their own body they were completely un disease. unable uh, sorry it's called keys disease it, like it, it, yeah it very well might be 
um, uh, ring some sort of bell, but I got a lot of bells in my head. <laughs> um, uh, but but this sort of like disease just sprung out in 1915, 1916, um, and then went away and disappeared after the 1950s, never to be seen again, never never worked out how it transmitted, where it came from, what happened, etc. Now, I've also followed like the whole um, testing of biological weapons and stuff during the 100 period, year period up until COVID as well. And another article in the ideological clouds of port and down is called also on johnnyfedmore.com and and you know at the time this there was a race a definitive you know it's it's all sides all of the people who go to this symposium and represent each of their countries you follow their timelines and it's all about gain of function research it's all about control in pandemics it's all about exerting control when there's not a pandemic or an epidemic and making it look like there's an epidemic or pandemic or making it look more deadly because one thing that uh, Reginald Farrar notes about his time because he writes a long report on this which is available again linked in the article uh, it's linked somewhere else in actual fact because uh, the Reginald Farrar stuff I'm making something called controller virus which is about um, this sort of birth of using gain-of-function research to control a population and their virus knowledge to control a population from back in this time all the way through because it's traceable and it's always the same actors it's always the same players and these guys these guys all come from uh things like uh institutes trusts royal societies they're all uh in these little elite groups and they have they seem to have a lot of fun they seem to have a lot of fun doing what they do um and at the same time what they deal in is death and if you see some of the things that they were doing they, they were able to experiment on people through all of the 1900s and get away with it and we know about it and we seem to it seems very much hubris uh a completely lack of real reality um to believe that they're not still aiming to do the same thing today and it doesn't stop in 1990 like you know i follow up the the look of how you can actually track their their uh efforts to uh use biological weapons against their own people i'm talking about the uk now uk mm. government themselves mod spraying uh things like cadmium and stuff over large areas through ships through trains through um anything they cars anything they can possibly use to gas as many people with this stuff gas well whatever you call it when the it's a operation agent. sea spray was one i've heard of this yeah this is i i did when, when i did the article i discovered that there's all these loads of these operations mm. but they've all separated them up in different articles at different times in little bits here and little bits there and when you actually put them all together you realize it's all the same operation it's massive and it'd been going on for like 40 years where they're spraying people with cancerous stuff um and deadly uh, gas and it's it's not just it's like all of the british population it's like tens of millions all of the main places the whole country they made sure it was all sprayed with stuff some got it worse than others so people in east lowworth had a load of birth defects 
which Brian Spratt then would help cover up. Brian Spratt, one of the man, men who's uh, Roy Anderson's, uh, uh, one of Roy Anderson's underlings, who's been with Roy and who has been completely funded by the Wellcome Trust for almost his entire career. So th these people are in control and do all of the re reviews, all of the inquiries, all of the inquests. They mark their own homework. When they did the foot and mouth inquiry, they split the foot and mouth inquiry into three separate inquiries and Roy Anderson and Neil Ferguson fell between the gaps completely mm. they're you know untouchable humans who go back and it, you go back over a hundred years and it's exactly the same thing a bunch a group of people working for trust and institutions that are actually arms of the government because if you go into the royal society i tell you there's little element like round table elements within that society who are responsible for doing that behind closed doors and getting their little guys who are all members of their club to go and do some stuff that the government can't get away with and the government goes to the royal society speaks with these people and they, these people get the stuff they shouldn't be able to get done done so they can cover up that they've been the ones who are responsible for the entire covid pandemic and then covering it up now the british side is the covering up side the responsibility for gain of function research and stuff in the long covid um pandemic that's mainly been done by america and chinese uh, chinese support but when it comes to covering things up who do you go to you go to the best mobsters in town you go to the home of the craze you go to london you go there and you get the mobsters out and they go and sort out your problems these guys behind me they're mobsters jeremy farrar put in of making us all look like a bunch of uh, making us all sit inside like a bunch of cucks there's no other way to say it uh make us all have to have jabs i i'm really happy i did not have that jab everybody everybody i know who had the jab uh all ill all of the time the yeah. one woman i feel so sorry for her, the one woman uh in the park i love her so much she's such a lovely lady i've literally brought up with her kids uh to a say i've grown up with her kids in the community i know them very well same age as me and stuff really beautiful human um she's had a jab four times she's had covid like three times in the past month and a half apparently or two months and 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 it is insane it is insane that constantly runny noses they're constantly looking at me and she's constantly saying no you can't i got covid again it's like i said to her but don't you see now the the you know i didn't say in a uppity way i said the, the vaccines didn't help then no my neighbor's had it four times it's, it's insane so just i think people can't separate out before we go i mean that there's so many different outcomes there like what are they aiming for is it purely to, to kill a load of people off is it purely to make money um, from the vaccines, from the treatments, is it purely gain a function to see what these things do and try and get ahead of how they were spread? Is it purely to change things so we usher in the Great Reset and have a cash society? How do they, how do they facilitate all these different possible outcomes into? Do you know there's different agendas at play here? But yeah. you know what I mean. I, mean, I think that's what confuses people because they try and look for yeah. one outcome. Yeah, I, I mean, you have to understand that basically 
all evil shit works in the same way. Yeah, you can't, these people can't just go and implement stuff. It does not work. They have to get some form of idea of consent so they can get the majority of people just arguing against the other people who are rational. And for that, they do it in waves. So they push. So when you watch the foot and mouth outbreak of the past, you can say that was like a small way, a smaller wave than COVID, but a bigger wave than what you had seen 20, 30, 40 years before. Um, when it comes down to virus stuff and reactions, they locked down the countryside and things. You know, they tested out uh, things that that would then later be implemented in COVID. But when you see COVID, it's a much bigger wave and it pushes much further in. But we have this like system. They come back out again afterwards, but they'll never go back to the original place. Yeah. You know, and we have this going on every system. Every system they push as far as they can, and it's like a childish sort of like get away with as much as you can while you can, and then go back and you get you know you can get away with more next time um and it is just simply is simply a human process they go through this wave process constantly backwards and forwards trying to push their agenda so i think we can see them thinking uh, at least saying out loud that they've been successful in some way at going enough to go on to the next part of their agenda which is of course the more transhumanist side of the agenda uh, which includes implantables and liquids that go inside your brain and and do all sorts of things that we can't even uh, we wouldn't even want to dream of um so so these people have they, they've pushed that far they've got the consent now 90 90 well, percent I reckon probably 70 if they're lucky percent of people have had jabs in them and so those 70 people uh, 70 percent people may not be up for a microchip but five ten percent of them now yeah and it'll be more next time and more next time and it's a gentle ushering of change that comes in waves and pushbacks and we've got to push back we got to we got to say every time we've got to pull them even further back we got to hold them to account but we often can't do that their operations are really mappable they, they, you know, if we had a court system that worked, um, I, I could, I could put together a, a case under British law with a group of people pretty easily, and we could go there and we could say, look, all of this stuff that's happened, um, we want these people prosecuted. We should be able to do that. We should be able to do that. We don't have a system for that at all. We see all of this criminal behaviour. We don't. They don't give us any sort of system to be able to change. They are there, are ruling us, and they're doing it with a little smug grin on their face. Because if anybody goes and types uh, Jeremy Farrar onto any search engine and goes look at a picture of him, you will see his little smug face looking like, <laughs> yes, me, growing up in Singapore, hanging around in Asia and learning all of these interesting things at the expense of human lives. At the expense, he is a, a minister of death um, and he's proven it in his actions and in covering up um even before, right at the start covering up something that that an innocent man he would have said no i'm not getting involved in that at all you crazy yeah, but there's yeah. not there's not many innocent men at the top because people like edward holmes and others have recruited all of the top through their programs this what this small structure of the welcome five is five people in a very powerful unit doing a very a very uh important job for the establishment 
establishment. There's loads of these small units all around the place, all booked, all doing their own separate things, but all aiming to get power and control over their own little portion of the cake in their own little way. Um, and, you know, we have to fight against them, but for it, you have to really break down who's responsible, what they're responsible for, and get down to the bare bones. Because the rest underneath, all of those underlings, crumble as soon as you take the five away at the top at any top you take the top of any uh pyramid shaped uh ideological structure or round table structure you take away the top it's gone everything underneath collapses in on itself it has to be that way and it we haven't done it before we've never been able to do it but the, the, this is a point in in time where we've got evidence we should we, we i mean really we should have a court system we should have a judicial system that allows us to actually uh, uh aim to prosecute people who are guilty of mass murder on a scale that i can't even uh, comprehend and who are still murdering people to this very day with because of the actions they've taken it's it's mind-blowing isn't it it really really is and i mean just before we go you, you, the connection there between reginald and jeremy and if there is a connection there it seems to me they do look down their lineage for someone like Jeremy would have grown up and having doors open for him left, right and centre just because of his bloodline. They have been fostered into this thinking that he has a right to do this type of thing. That's why people don't seem to be able to get their head around. If they are yeah, yeah. indeed related, that would show quite clearly that this is how it works for them. But me and you, we don't get doors open for us. We have to unlock the thing and walk through ourselves. These people... They've spent mm. their life having doors open for them. They never really work for opportunities. And, and there's secret doors. There's secret doors. There are doors that we don't see. You and me don't see the doors they walked through. When Jeremy Farrar was in his teenage years in school, he seemed like a spoiled child by the sound of it. And then he got kicked up the butt to start with a family business. And he's gone out ever, ever since to work hard at being something. His father worked in loads of countries all around the world. It seems to be uh, a, a thing I've seen over and over again in the post-war where people worked in embassies and uh, as diplomats around the place or teachers in loads of different foreign countries uh, while these control structures are implemented in loads of different ways. So I think there's an intelligence link that goes back. And I think uh, intelligence nearly always keeping it in the family. Um, you, you don't have to compromise somebody. You can have previously compromised their father or their mother and that person will also be under your spell and there's a long history of compromise intelligence compromise operations so there's um and a lot of people who are loyal to the state i think that's part of it too a lot of these people uh, uh join the royal society for a reason they have an ideology it's an ideology that goes back to things like the british raj and 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 other things of the past so i mean the future is much brighter than these guys for sure well johnny where can people find your work and connect with you and i'll put your website's link below but thank you for your time as well hey that's all right um if you want to if you want to uh read this then you can go to johnnyvedmore.com up the top you'll see a thing that says fungi monkey and that's where i do all my media stuff so if you want to watch the first start the the very amateurish uh start of the controller virus documentary about Ferrar and these others uh you can do this also loads of other stuff there so fungi monkey so like the 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 good old mushrooms fungi monkey.com uh, uh johnnyvedmore.com i also do work for unlimited hangout 
hangout.com um and i hopefully will be working with loads of other people in the future but please um have a time and all look after each other because there's people after doing very bad stuff to us all the time <laughs> we, we've got to look out for each other well cheers guys i'll put all the links below and i hope you enjoyed this please please leave comments as well and please share this video as much as you can and go and visit all of johnny's links so cheers mate and i'll speak to you soon take care excellent boss thank you your call is important to us Arrive at your destination. Connecting.